Hello, new community. My name is Brian Haugstead. My wife, Gina, and I came to Spokane one year ago in order for me to attend Gonzaga University School of Law. Before we came to Spokane, we researched churches online in hopes of finding a good community for the time that we're here. We came up with a list of four churches, and upon attending NewCom, knew immediately that it was where God wanted us to be. I've been involved in the media management at NewCom. Typically, I'm up in the booth once or twice a month creating and running slideshows. Recently, I've been volunteering with the music ministry in preparing to return to live services in the future. This week, I was given the privilege of creating a playlist to accompany the sermon. I was tasked with selecting three to five songs, and I failed this task miserably. Songs kept coming to me, and I kept adding them to the list. So currently, there are 16 songs. I hope that there are at least a few songs on there that you connect with and enjoy. We are so glad that you're taking the time to listen to this week's message. It can be a challenge to juggle work, school, family, self-care, and everything else on our plates. Taking time to invest in our relationship with God is the best thing that we can do. This is a call to worship adapted from J. Philip Newell. With the rising of the sun, life rises again within us, O God. In the dawning of the morning light, you lead us from the mists of night into the clarity of the day. In the new light of this day, bring us to a clear knowing of the mystery that first bore us from the dark. Bring us to a clear knowing of the love from which all life is born. For the first showings of the morning light and the emerging outline of the day, thanks be to you, O God. We pray in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At the time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and set them before him, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Please join me in reflecting on the following words from Mike Iaconelli, 
Feel free to grab a journal or you can reflect silently, pressing pause if you need to, or talk to a family member next to you. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. The good news is no longer good news, it's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing, it's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wild-eyed radicals anymore. He changes them into nice people. The greatest enemy of Christianity may be people who say they believe in Jesus, but who are no longer astonished and amazed. We have allowed technology to beat our imaginations into submission and have become tourists rather than travelers. We've been stunted by mediocrity. Our world is populated with domesticated grown-ups who would rather settle for safe, predictable answers instead of wild, unpredictable mystery. Faith has been reduced to a comfortable system of beliefs about God instead of an uncomfortable encounter with God. The church should be full of Christians who seek questions rather than answers, mystery instead of solutions, and wonder instead of explanations. The quote states, Our world is populated with domesticated grown-ups who would rather settle for safe, predictable answers instead of wild, unpredictable mystery. Why is the tendency of some to lean toward the predictable rather than the mystery? What can we do to be more comfortable with the uncertain? In the quote, Mike Iaconelli says, Faith has been reduced to a comfortable system of beliefs about God instead of an uncomfortable encounter with God. Do you agree with this assessment? Have you had an uncomfortable encounter with God? If so, what did it look like? The church should be full of Christians who seek questions rather than answers, mystery instead of solutions, and wonder instead of explanations. How do we cultivate a sense of wonder in our lives? Welcome, new community, to our Sunday podcast. It's Kevin here. We're glad that you have uh, decided to join us either on this Sunday or whenever you're listening. But uh, we have the distinct privilege this morning of um, talking with a great, trusted friend of mine, Kent McDonald, who uh, I was thinking about it this morning. And Kent and I have known each other for 16 years now. We met through uh, an organization that 
we both worked with at the time Young Life, which uh, I'll let Kent kind of uh, explain his background with Young Life and where he's at now currently. But we met 16 years ago. I was 22, fresh out of college, coming on to Young Life staff, and Kent was... Um, I'll say Kent was an elder at that point in the ministry, um, and he took me under his wing and has been, uh, in a lot of ways, a great friend and a mentor to me, and uh, we get to talk to him today, continuing in our, uh, in our series, Practicing the Presence of God. And so, uh, Kent, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? Well, thanks for having me. It's a yeah. beautiful morning this morning. Come on, look at, look at this out here. I know. Greatest city in the world, huh? Hey. Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Your nature and you're <clears throat> perfect. Isn't that right? Is that what they oh, say? <laughs> you could not have said more truer words this morning. <laughs> um, so, Kent, tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, maybe let's start with the most important stuff, your family, and then uh, job and interests, and uh, then maybe end with your connection to new community. Sure. Uh, I am uh, a father of three wonderful daughters. Uh, two of them are married, and I got two grandchildren. My wife Linda and I have been married thirty-eight, thirty. She's gonna get mad at me. Some yeah. close to forty. <laughs> yeah, somewhere we close can cut to this part out 40, if we need to. to forty years. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, got married in eighty-one, so you can do the math. I think uh, there we go. I had a great mullet back in eighty-one, and. Uh, <laughs> I was a business major out of Seattle Pacific University. That's where I met my wife in Seattle, at, at Seattle Pacific. How have all the businesses that you've started been going? Is that great? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been unbelievable. It's been unbelievable. I thought I might come up with something funny to, that would be hilarious about some llama farm I've started. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, have, I didn't start a business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I got involved. Uh, I had been involved in Young Life uh, as a volunteer in college. And uh, my senior year, uh, well, put together two resumes, one for business and one because I had this funny thought that I might like youth ministry. I might like this thing. So I uh, got hired at church at Bellevue to do kind of a Young Life partnership. And the rest was history. I, I loved it. I remember telling my wife, she said she didn't know who she was marrying. Like, am I marrying a businessman or a uh, yeah. a pastor? And yeah. uh, she goes, what is this thing? And I remember telling her, I think I just, I'm going to take this job as a youth pastor because I have a couple more skits in me. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and then the skits never left. And I've been doing it for like uh, almost 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh. uh, we went uh, from being youth pastor uh, in churches and uh, twice on Young Life staff. And finally, we went back on Young Life staff to go to Africa in 1994 to start uh, Young Life and Youth Ministry work in uh, Africa. We were in Kenya. In fact, Kevin, you joined me to go uh, visit some of the work we started in Kenya. So from 94, to, yeah, 94 to 2000, my wife and I and our three little daughters were in Kenya, which I, I had it all figured out, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, theologically. And everything yeah. was all nice and tidy till I went to Africa. And then I yeah. uh, worked on my doctorate and a lot of the questions started, which I thought were going to wreck my faith. But the, actually the questions I was able to ask in Africa and continue to ask have actually made me love Jesus and love the Bible more than I could have ever imagined. And I was yeah. uh, I grew up in a system that said, yeah, don't go there. Don't ask those questions. Don't 
don't read the Bible that way. There's a way, there's a certain way to read it, certain way to believe. Yeah. Um, and then in 2000, my good friend Terry McGonigal, who is the chaplain here at Whitworth, who we knew each other because he had been on Young Life staff, asked if I would come and start a Young Life training program here at Whitworth University and teach a little in the theology department. So that's since 2000, almost 20 some one years or so, we've been here in Spokane. Yeah. So Kent, you alluded to uh, our time together in Africa. So in 2008, um, you had made it kind of a regular rhythm since you had been back into Spokane to go back to Africa every year or two or three to continue relationships with people you had started there. You had actually helped start a nonprofit that was doing some work in South Africa. Um, and Kent invited me to go and I tagged along for three weeks and we traveled through South Africa and saw some work that was happening there and did some uh, teachings and trainings and just hanging out with incredible people in Kenya for uh, a week or, or 10 days. And that I, I would continue to look back. I mean, as much as you said, your time in Africa um, shaped your faith and shaped your understanding of God in a lot of ways, or maybe uh, created restlessness that you had to wrestle with, right? Uh, for me, that three weeks, a much shorter period of time than the life uh, amount of life you gave there has has had profound effects on my understanding of who God is. And so um, that I look back in that year of 2008 uh, as kind of a, a watershed moment in my life, which I'm, uh, I'm thankful for in a lot of ways. Bro, speaking of watershed, do you remember that little uh, steel building you spoke to a, a little uh, <laughs> South African youth ministry there? Yeah. And I've never seen Kevin Langmire, just picture this in your mind, oh, new community, more sweaty in my entire life. Uh, you were drenched. <laughs> it was so hot. I think it's safe to say my body is not built for uh, the African weather system. <laughs> it, was, it was a remarkable sight to be seen. Oh, Lord, that was beautiful. Uh, All right, so Kent, this morning, the topic uh, that we are um, chasing after is this idea of wonder, awe, and imagination. And I I actually want to start with this little scripture here. Um, It's Matthew 18, and uh, I'll just read it. It starts in one, and it says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and set them before him. And said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So that's uh, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. <clears throat> I was thinking about our uh, our time this morning and trying to th- figure out what does a life of wonder actually look like. And I have young boys and their uh, imagination process, their wonder just at life around them is something that has been really eye-opening to me. And, and it, it reminded me of this scripture. As you were talking, you've spent 40 years in youth ministry, which is far beyond the average. I mean, what's, you probably know the average. What does the, the average youth pastor stay in youth ministry? <laughs> yes. So it, 
Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. It's, so the uptick is two and a half years. Uh, so you have uh, almost gone fifteen times the national average or world average. Um, do you think some of that has to do with the uh, reality that working with youth maybe leads us to this idea of wonder and leads us to an idea of uh, living a faith of wonder and imagination? Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, it could, it, it could lead you to a life of uh, anger. And uh, I, I want to take these kids out when I'm in a cabin yeah. <laughs> at night trying to get some sleep or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. I think young people um, ask the greatest questions um, and maybe especially those within young life who haven't grown up in the system like yeah uh they're not playing the, the the i grew up in a church game so they can maybe really ask questions with the least amount of bs i mean straight up yeah let's, let's get real and so that's what i've loved about youth ministry is that it forces you to uh be honest with your theology because kids are, are not as filtered you know at, at the church it's like nice pass nice Nice sermon today, Kevin. Nice job, yeah. Russ. Kids will just walk out and go, "That sucked. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was that was BS." <laughs> you know. So maybe yeah. I've seen more than anything. It's maybe uh, real, but allowed me, you know, when we go on trips and stuff, to continue to be awed by uh, the beauty and wonder of nature and yeah, and the mystery of God. Where yeah, somebody will find God not because I proved it, but because they experienced something on a trip with with a group of guys looking at a mountain or looking at a lake or talking about their family that yeah. seemed real and it touched them mysteriously in their soul you know yeah so how how would you define wonder uh where where do you see this idea of wonder in the scripture yeah i i i don't know how to define it other than that so I, I think uh, in Celtic Christianity, they, they call these thin places in our world where you, uh, for some reason, so often it's in nature, where you stop and, and, the, and the mystical and the concrete reality kind of hit and the goosebumps come up onto your neck and you yeah. think this is beyond science this is beyond my understanding and you just sit for a moment and maybe cry or even raise your hand or pump a fist and go yeah. this is awesome and you can't quite explain why it's just that yeah. beauty and sometimes it's beauty and pain kind of kissed and you go how well, you know this in africa right when we were there where yeah. you go how can this be beautiful in the midst of such pain but you see these glimpses of the mystery of joy and beauty that just catch your breath. You know? Yeah. I don't yeah. Where do you, uh, where, yeah. Where do you see these thin places or uh, the idea of wonder and awe expressed through scripture? Uh, yeah. Well, I think the parables that Jesus told, um, I think point to this, you know, when Jesus says, look at the lilies of the valley, you know. Oh, yeah. They don't spin or whatever, and let, yet they're clothed. And uh, look at the birds of the air. You know, Jesus tended to push us towards, yeah, the wonder of, of nature and creation. Uh, or, or the parables Jesus told around, hey, there was this guy who owned a vineyard and some guys needed work. And he hired some guys to say, hey, you want some work? And said, yeah, I'll pay you, you know, 
20 bucks for the day. And so they started it in the morning and then kept hiring guys all throughout yeah. the day. Some guys got hired at the last hour to work like an hour and at the end of the day paid them all the same wage. Talk about wonder or being ticked off that who, yeah. who does this. But totally. the wonder of those kinds of stories in the Bible, it makes you stop and go, huh, are you kidding me? That is not fair. And you go, yeah, you're right. That's that's grace. You know, it's not fair. It's something called grace, which the human experience doesn't uh, seem to <laughs> like. I, I remember one time, too, uh, reading. Uh, I learned through my doctoral work, you know, uh, he, some Hebrew and uh, re reading like I, I remember reading Matthew 14. I, I'm just going to look it up here. It's <clears throat> I used to skip these parts of the Bible uh, or excuse me, Matthew chapter one. And it's all of the uh, lineage, uh, you know, <laughs> a record of the genealogy of Jesus. You know, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah, the father of Perez. Perez, the father. And it goes on and on. And you just go, please, this is why yeah. I don't read the Bible. I'm going to skip the chapter two right <laughs> yeah, now. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I remember just studying in wonder uh, this mystery that uh, at the end of, there's three sections of Matthew chapter one, all with lineages of 14. Yeah. Uh, if you count them. And uh, there's something called numerology or it's called geomatra, which is this mystical thing that the Hebrew people used to do with uh, the, the letters of, of their Hebrew alphabet, you know? So like uh, Dalit is the A, B, C, D, Dalit is uh, number four. And then Vav is number six. Well, there's no vowels in Hebrew. So Dalit, Vav, Dalit is the term, is the name David, David. Yeah. And uh, it, th those numbers add up to 14. Yeah. So what Matthew's trying to do is, is show the lineage of David. He put, and the Hebrew, whoever wrote this, put it in 14s, 14, 14, 14. David's name adds up to 14. And I remember just standing up in class going, oh, my word. <laughs> I mean, either the, even if this isn't inspired, like the Illuminati or the aliens who put this together, like this, the least you can say about this dang book is wonder. Yeah. Who put this thing together? That's yeah. unreal. It's probably why they yeah. study the Bible as literature still down at Wazoo, even though it yeah. may not to them be inspired. But it makes you go, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, um, I mean, in your doctoral, <laughs> in your doctoral work, it, it sounds like you're beginning to be exposed to some of these things that create that sense of wonder, that sense of awe in you. Certainly, uh, in Africa, you lived that reality for, uh, the amount of time you were there. How, how has wonder shaped your life and your, um, kind of the way that you live out your faith in Christ? Hmm. I, well, let's, let's, let's start here. Everything we know and think about God is imaginative. Well, um, explain that. Cause that sounds um, well, not like the answer that you would uh, want to hear. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything we read about God and try to understand God is metaphor. I mean, no one has seen God but Jesus, the son who's made him known. That's the only person who's seen God. So all of the Bible is all metaphor. I mean, like, is God a mighty mountain? Um, is God a lion? Well, he's a lion of Judah. 
Well, is God a lion? Is he an eagle? Is he a mother hen who guards us with his wing? These are all, is he a warrior? Is God a male? Yeah. Uh, these are all metaphors from the Holy Spirit and people in a certain context, in a certain time, God using their symbols and their understandings to try to create a picture of what God uh, might be like. And there's conflicting images of what God might be like. You know, yeah. God's a warrior, oftentimes in the <clears throat> Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and says, you see me, you see God. And uh, I tell you, uh, why are you killing people? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't kill them. And they're going, well, what about the Assyrians? Shouldn't we kill them? We like a warrior God. And Jesus going, yeah, well, I, I'm just saying I don't know what you were thinking there. You know, so yeah. all of these understandings that we have of God are metaphor and image and uh, imagination. So <laughs> unless somebody can actually say, no, I actually saw God. I went, you know. He, he showed up. Yeah. So, in I mean, um, the reason I said that maybe that's not the answer we were expecting <laughs> or hoping for is we live in a um, an age, a time, a culture that values certainty, uh, that values, you know, like concrete idea that values proof. I can remember as a new Christian, uh, so just in college, I was probably uh, a sophomore or maybe a junior at this time. Somebody gave me the Case for Christ uh, famous book by Lee Strobel. Yeah, uh, the Strobes, as I call him. <clears throat> and he wrote, I mean, he was like an investigative reporter. And he proved or essentially set out to prove that Jesus was true, was real, that that's a historical figure, that all of the, um, all of the things that we know about Jesus from the scripture actually happened. And somebody gave that to me saying, it is critical that you read this so that you have the proof of the God that you follow of the Jesus that you trust. So that's like that concrete, that certainty that we feel like we need to have. But you're kind of coming at it from the other end saying, we don't have those things. What we have is metaphor. What we have are different pictures, different uh, explanations uh, of, of who God might be. So what, how does that play out in your faith? Like, how do you reconcile those things? Or um, how do you lean into that idea of wonder when you're talking, when you want to practice the presence of God in your own life? Yeah, but Kevin, you would, you would say this, right? And this is the truth. Like all those proofs that were so concrete, even you would say, yeah, in going to Africa or in living uh, your life to, how old are you now? Yeah, I mean, you're, I'm, uh, I'm right getting close to 40. I, you know what, when you said that you got married in 1981, I was born in 1981. So you, uh, you've been married as long as I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. Certainty is great until it isn't. <laughs> and, 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 you know, let's just be honest. I mean, some, some of it, I grew up seriously in, in, what my generation gave you was certainty. Yeah, we we came up with books. Started with uh, I think uh, not Lee Strobel, but it was uh, Evidence Demands of uh, Josh McDowell. Jo Josh Mc, yeah, yeah. And we came up with in my generation all of the apologetics. We called it. 
Yeah. And we wanted to prove that God existed. We wanted to prove the resurrection. We wanted to prove all of these things. And uh, that's great. And, and I actually realized that at one point, it was when I was in seminary, that I actually uh, was more in love with proofs that my Christian faith was based on archaeological digs. Like, oh, yeah. we found that maybe they crossed the Red Sea, that we found some yeah. wagon wheels. And, and you know, and <laughs> because we have very little proof, honestly, yeah. honestly, I know this can shock people, that, you know, 400,000 Hebrew people were walking across the desert out of Egypt. There's very little. Yeah. We have, in fact, it's it's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, but man, I was just jumping on anything we could do to prove this stuff. And, um, I realized I loved proof and I loved apologetics, uh, more than I, but I, I wasn't in love with the story that the Bible was trying to tell me and the God that the, the Bible was pointing me to. Yeah. My, my whole Christian faith is based on proofs and apologetics not not an experience of, of of this living God, you know, that is tough to nail down. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a guy named Peter Enns. Uh, he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty, which is a, a very interesting book. I don't agree with all of it. Uh, I'm not saying that certainty. Are you, are you saying sin? Certainty yeah. is a sin. Being certain <laughs> is a sin. Uh, I think what he's trying to say and what I how I would unpack it is that. Yes, uh, when you put your faith in proof, not in the God that you're trying to prove, yeah, a problem happens when we enter. Because when we enter periods of real doubt, which I would say, if you haven't, you're probably uh, maybe not growing as yeah. God would want to push you to grow. Um, that we have to hang on to certainty at all costs, then I think it becomes a problem. Um, sometimes I think churches trust more in their systems or in their doctoral statements, which we can't even as churches agree on most often. Uh, we trust in systems of maybe certainty more than God. And for instance, um, uh, it's, and it, it's not that wanting to be certain in your faith, you know, God's going to blast you for it. Uh, but trusting in God personally is more important than somehow proving your church has the correct belief. Yeah. Um, it, here's, here's my deal. Belief is a mental word. Um, and so often what we say being a Christian is, is I mentally assent to a certain thing of the way the cross works, the way the Bible is, the way God comes into my heart or something. But trust involves a relationship. So the goal of our, of our faith is learning how to trust God, not the systems that lead us there. I know it's, that's a mystical, I mean, trusting God is visceral. It's active. It's, yeah. Not simply intellectual. It, it includes it includes your mind, but yeah. it's but it's an experience. Um, I I say it this way: beliefs, which I will call the reason I say beliefs, is I think beliefs gives us systems of of certainty. Yeah, that's why we have these doctrinal statements. Yeah, 
Beliefs allow you to study God, know about God, but in order to really know God, you have to jump in and start this mysterious journey. I mean, you uh, if any of you have done rock climbing or any kind of like uh, uh, experiential learning, one of the things that happens is we do something called uh, a trust fall. I I think almost every experience something where you stand on a desk or stand on a rock and say, before you go rock climbing, hey, fall backwards, you know, and we will catch you. If anybody has ever been to camp at all, you've done a trust trust fall. fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a reason it's called a trust fall, not a belief fall. Yeah. You actually have to step off the ledge uh, and, and experience the reality. Yeah. Not just stand there and go, okay, okay, here's a great one. Uh, in the early 19th century, I've used this in my class a lot. There was a great tightrope walker. This is before Cirque du Soleil and, you know, America's yeah. Got Talent and all this. You know. yeah. <laughs> but this was the traveling. He was, he was called the Great Blondin. He was one of the greatest tightrope walkers uh, in, the, in the world. And he was a showman. And uh, he was one of the first, I think, that actually uh, walked across Niagara Falls on a, on a tightrope. Okay. Uh, balancing out. But he would then, he was a, a showman. Like, he would go into cities and string uh, a, a line across two big buildings. I think the big story was in New York. He strung it across, like, 42nd Street. Okay. This is in the early 19th century. And crowds would gather. I mean, this is, like, before the shows. And I mean, this is like, yeah. come on, we're going to go to the concert. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, Dave Matthews is in town. We're all going yeah. to or something. Or, you know, it's, the great Blondin is here. Let's yeah, go downtown. Yeah. yeah. And he would get people, they would climb up these buildings and he would, and the story is that he was on one side of the building and he's talking to the people on the building where he's standing going, do you think I can walk? And he had a wheelbarrow, push this wheelbarrow across to the other side of the building. And do you think I can do it? And they're going, uh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. You know, and, and so the crowd would chant and he would get them going like, chant, yes, we do. You know, and he would push yeah. it across and the crowd would cheer. And then you get the other building cheering. You think I can push it back? Yes, we believe. We believe. We believe. And, and, and he would push it back and people were cheering. And he said, do you think that I can push this wheelbarrow again, you know, blindfolded? And, and they were going, we believe, we believe. And then he pointed to somebody. He actually pointed to somebody. He said, okay, you believe? I believe. He said, get in the wheelbarrow. Well, that's the difference between, you know, certainty. At a certain yeah. point, certainty uh, lets you down and you have to go away. I, wait a minute. I have to step into the mystery of trust, yeah. which is something I can't prove until I enter it yeah so this uh i know we maybe didn't talk about this question beforehand um if i'm a person listening to this and i feel like i have been um standing very solidly on the building chanting we believe i believe i believe how do i make that movement to be the person that gets in the wheelbarrow what is, I mean, what is that, maybe maybe not the full movement, but what does that first step look like to uh, say, okay, it's not just belief, it's not just a doctrine that I hold or the proof of scripture, but it's actually the trust uh, that I have in relationship with yeah. God. I mean, just think about this, 
I mean, uh, let, let me come at this a couple ways. One is, just think about this. People actually became, quote, Christians or followers of Jesus before there were Bibles. Yeah. What do you do with that? You know, I remember just this simple idea that now, at a certain point, maybe there was a section of a, a letter from Paul or something that a church might get at a certain point. It could be read, but nobody held them and came home and studied them to prove the certainty of it all. Yeah. Well, and they didn't know that what they were reading from Paul was the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just, just a letter. letter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was a letter <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I remember telling my class this and my class is like, oh, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, wait, if we don't have the Bible. We got nothing. Yeah. Now, praise God, we have the Bible. It, it's this library of books, uh, you know, written from three different continents with 60 different authors that are all trying to imaginatively understand in their experience with the Holy Spirit pictures of what God was like. And yeah. this, this human and um, God-breathed book, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think that there, there was the reality of experiencing God beyond uh, even a book that allowed us to try to uh, pin it all down. Yeah. We had to trust that the spirit of God and uh, was present. Yeah. And maybe the way I would say, how do we make that step off the building? I believed into the wheelbarrow is the only way the, the, the mystics or the uh, early church fathers would uh, describe it would be surrender. Huh? Uh <laughs> I, I, the only, and that's that's a tough one. Where you, when I think of surrender, I always think of the old Western movies where the sheriff would come, come out with your hands up, you know. <laughs> okay, it's a, but it's the kind of universal sign of surrender. You just yeah. you sort of open your hands and quit hanging on to the certainty line. You let go of it and you open your hands and kind of raise them and go, okay. Uh, maybe I don't know as much about God as I think I do, but I, I trust that you're there and that the, the most. Re, the most baseline truth that scripture tells us about God is this. God is love. Yeah. And you step into that and maybe the rest begins to unfold. I don't know. Yeah. So um, we've used this phrase and you, you talked about the, the ends book um, certainty. Uh, although not, I don't want to demonize this idea of uh, being certain about things is a, is a bad thing, but do you think it can be, can it ever verge on spiritually dangerous uh, certainty in your faith? Uh, yeah. Um, I think certainty um well, let me, let me do a couple things. Um, I want to say certainty and systems hold us for a while. I, I think uh, of my own children. I mean, when you're kids, you kind of like certainty. I mean, I, 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 uh, I have this uh, 
second grade math book that my daughter Claren had. And in the math book, there was certainty in it. You know, you knew these things, you know, two yeah. plus two equals four, you know, and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And in the math book, it literally says this. You cannot subtract a bigger number from a smaller one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can. Yeah. But for a second grader, you just cannot go there. Yeah. And so the, the truth was you cannot subtract a bigger number from a, a smaller one. Well, yes, you can. There's something called negatives, you know, negative yeah. numbers. Well, you, you'll get to that later. And I think that's what happens in certainty, Kevin, where we hang on to these truths that might be sort of elemental or that held us for a while, but then somebody introduces negative numbers and you either go, whoa, I, I got to walk into that mystery because that's something that I don't think makes sense to me right now. Yeah. But it's a, a, a deeper mystical truth that you at some point enter. Here's the problem. When you just hang on to certainty and, and, and demand, no, you cannot subtract a bigger number from a smaller one. No, no, no. I mean, th this is where um, when you start, you know, uh, hanging on to that, I, well, history shows that it leads to violence. Oh. That we over systems and doctrines and beliefs burnt people to the stake, killed I mean, the Catholics and the Protestants, even just until recently in Ireland, are still killing each other over doctrinal certainty. And, uh, and, and it might not be physical violence. It might just be even, um, but I, I history would say it, it most often is physical violence. Yeah. Wars. Uh, but, but it, or it can become the, the kind of violence where you shame people or hate people or ostracize certain people from, certain genders or, 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 or however skin colors, or, I mean, we're in the midst of this right now, uh, for not, not holding the cue cards in the same way that you do. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I think certainty has led to some of the greatest atrocities in history. Yeah. What, um, <clears throat> so, um, the process then of knowing, um, when is it appropriate? When is it right to take movement forward, to take steps forward, to uh, see the negative numbers and say, okay, this doesn't make sense from everything in my past that I've learned. Now I'm going to take a step forward and begin to try to learn about this idea of negative numbers. Uh, when did that play out for you? Like, when, when do you think that switched uh, for you in your own faith? And um, because it, you, you had mentioned growing up in a maybe what we would call a traditional kind of church upbringing. So when did you begin to open your hands and surrender in that way? Well, I think it always starts at some point. You ask the question, what about, I remember the, what about the pygmies? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Age old question. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, the, it's that question where you say, wow, if I, if I had been born in Saudi Arabia, there is a 99.5%, probably 99.8% chance that I'd be a Muslim. Um, and so I guess I die. My certainty is, yeah, if you don't ask Jesus into your heart and confess with your mouth that he's Lord, I mean, it's Romans, you know, yeah. then, uh, you won't be saved. And I loved that idea for a yeah. long time until, uh, I met some Muslims and some people. And then you, uh, some of this happened even in Africa where you realize, huh? 
So you're telling me that St. Peter at the pearly gates, whatever that is, uh, this image that we have, <laughs> this imaginative image, is going to say to uh, Said, sorry, you were just born on the wrong continent, bro. And, you know, now you get to just, you know, that's where it starts, I think, for a lot of people wondering, um, do, I mean, I grew up believing that uh, maybe it was just the conservative Baptists that got in. Catholics, no way. I, yeah. I grew up, you know, the Pope was the Antichrist in the system that I, that I grew up in. And then I, later in life, my spiritual mentor, I think you've met him, Father Roxasano, a yeah. Benedictine priest, became my mentor and taught me more about God than I ever did. But in college, I went down to the monastery at Mount Angel where he lived because I met him at a wedding. And he invited us down, some college guys down. And I went down to convert him. I brought him some four spiritual law tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah. And so th th that's, uh, I think, where... Um, Hmm. I think that's what it started to change for me, you know. Well, you met Harjenda and Jeswena. Yeah, I My lived in their house lit. for a week. Yeah. Do you remember laying in? Uh, we were sleeping in the same bed. If you remember, I think. Yeah. Were we? <laughs> that was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, you. Thanks for snuggling. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I remember having conversations because they had just begun. Do you recall to understand the word grace? Yeah. Because in their Punjab, Sikhism, if you don't know what Sikhism is, it's that mix between, uh, it's a Hindu sort of uh, Islamic faith. That yeah. believes in reincarnation and they wear the turbans and all. Yeah. And in their Punjab language, there's not a word for grace. Yeah. There's karma, which is something you have to live out. So grace is not even a concept. So the conversations we had, I remember, I think laying in the bed going, so the, the, they're, are, they, are they going to hell? Yeah. They are the most loving, giving people who pray to Guru Nanak, worship their holy book, have a cross up with their other idols and pray to Jesus too. Yeah. There's where the mystery began for me. Yeah. So Kent, here's, here's what I'm hearing, uh, although you're, you're maybe not um, saying it outright, but it seems like it switched for you when you um, begin to love people more than love an idea or love a belief system. Um, I mean, you're, you're speaking that about uh, uh, your experience in Africa, but also your experience when you met wonderful Muslim people and, and they, <clears throat> you, you begin to see them as people and love them in that way rather than your uh, set of beliefs that had led you to believe that, um, uh, some some sort of spiritual doctrine where they could ne could never be saved. Is that correct? Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah. And I, yeah, no, I, Kevin, you're right. And, you know, I mean, this might be loaded to say I, I was pretty certain early on in my life who was or was not in. Yeah. I was really certain. Yeah. There were lines that were just so clear to me. And I think as I've talked and, and studied and wrestled with e that, that even the systems I think I hold so precious are still filled with mystery. Um, that maybe God's bigger and more loving than I could have ever imagined. And I, I, I want to believe that. Yeah. Um, now, I might be wrong. Maybe God is a conservative Baptist, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, 
I, 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 I'm not, I don't have to be careful. I love my conservative Baptist roots, but, uh, but maybe God is bigger than I thought. Yeah. And I don't ultimately know, but I guess I'm not as concerned about ho- holding on to that as a, as a, as a proof for something that I, that, uh, I, I, I have to hold to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, one of the things I've, loved about you, Kent. And uh, one of the ways that you have encouraged me is you um, read and study scripture and then preach scripture, speak about scripture through a lens that um, is incredibly unique and imaginative. And you you have an ability to see the story within the story. Um, do you think as you are a student of scripture and as we all should be students of scripture, what does that imagination process look like and how can that help us maybe to um, be a people that's more willing to get in the wheelbarrow if we continue <laughs> to continue to use that story? Well, uh, say this again. Uh, ask me this again, uh, Kevin, in a little different way here. Are you, are you saying, um, ask me that question again. How, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. Yeah, like, um, so you, as as you are uh, reading and studying scripture, it seems like you allow your, um, your understanding or your brain to actually imagine the story in a different way or imagine God's presence in the story that we are reading from the gospel or wherever that has really been an encouragement to me and has helped me to see God through a lens of wonder rather than a lens of certainty. How, how do we, how do we use that or how do we use our imagination to study the scripture in a, uh, in a healthy, vibrant way that leads us to be a faithful people? Yeah. I, I mean, here, here we go. This, this is a huge, you can take whole classes on this, but I mean, yeah. the bottom line is this, first of all, to recognize that you are reading the Bible through a lens that when we take the Bible to America in 2020 and read it, um, we, we come with all kinds of lenses that we're looking at this through. And, and at first to realize, you know, the, the big thing is to realize, wait, the Bible was written in a context. Yeah. And it's not, this was hard for me. I, I actually sort of remember early on, I, I know this wasn't true. People say, oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's God breathing. God used human authors and worked through them. And I said, well, what, did they go into a trance? Well, they didn't go into a trance, but they... Uh, uh, you know, we we struggle with the human and spiritual side of the Bible in the same way that we say Jesus is fully God and fully human. We love the fully God part of Jesus. Yeah, it's harder for us to to grasp the human part of Jesus. Like we know he didn't sin, but how close did he get? Um, you know, did he fart? Did he? You know, we 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 don't like that part of of of, of the story of Jesus. It's easier for us to think Jesus knew everything as a baby. He could speak every language, but he just hit it. Um, but, and we don't know what to do with Luke 2.52, you know, and, uh, and Jesus grew in stature and wisdom with God and man. Well, what, how did he grow? What did he yeah. did or did he not know? We struggle with the human part of Jesus and we struggle with the human part of the Bible. What's that interplay, right? Um, and the big thing for me is to realize that, um, the Bible wasn't written from one single view uh, of what God is like. And this is what hit me. My friend Dean, Mor- Dean Borgman, who was one of my seminary professors in Boston at Gordon-Conwell, 
I visited him. I visited him a lot. He's my mentor and friend. We taught a lot in Africa. He introduced me to a rabbi friend of his. And it, it occurred to me, this is literally just about eight years ago, <laughs> where I was really struggling. And I don't know about you when I think about scripture. The place most of my college students struggle is not with Jesus. It's with the Old Testament. What yeah. do we do with that Old Testament? The, the, the scriptures of Israel, you know? The Hebrew scriptures, because that's where it's crazy, where it, it seems like this loving God is, you know, we hear, we read one thing, God is loving and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. You know, we read this in Psalm, like, uh, I think it's 103 or, you know, but then we read Numbers four, four, uh, 15 and we read that, it's, I have this kind of memorized, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And the Lord had not yet spoken. And so the Lord only gave one command. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But he hadn't said, what you do if you should pick up, if you pick up sticks. Yeah. So the Lord had not spoken. And so they brought him to Moses. And Moses tarried before the Lord all night and gathered the assembly together in the morning and said, thus saith the Lord, the elders are to take the man outside the camp and stone him to death. So I remember coming up on that and going, the Lord is gracious and kind, slow to anger, abounding in love. Well, not to that guy. Yeah. I mean, it's like he didn't even know the Lord had not spoken. He's just picking up sticks on, on, on a Saturday. Well, on, on the Sabbath. Yeah. And Moses <clears throat> spends 24 hours and God had very little patience and said, yeah, I know. Kill him. Well, we, I, I struggle with the Old Testament. Uh, what's going on here? And my, my ra this rabbi was incredible. And I, it just never occurred to me, hey, if the scriptures of Israel are actually uh, the Jewish people's Bible, then we should probably ask the rabbis how they interpret it and understand it. And here's what he said to me. And it's, it's really marked me, Kevin. He said, oh, uh, the scriptures of Israel, uh, what does Israel mean, Kent? Took me a while, but you realize that a guy named Jacob wrestled with with God, and after the wrestling match, uh, he, he, God changed his name to Israel, which means wrestling with God. That's what Israel means to wrestle with God, and he says the Old Testament scripture is a wrestling match, and it's done. It's written in the same way we, as rabbis, uh, function today. We argue and say, "Oh, the, the school of Hillel says this. The school of Shammai says this." The rabbis would get their little schools and they would argue about God and argue about God. He says it's an argument, and then he said, "You Protestants figured out that Jesus ended the argument, and said that Jesus was the final end of the argument and set the story straight." By the way, Jesus set the story that God is pretty nice and pretty loving, uh, but uh, that's what. The scripture is. It's a wrestling match for us to continue to work and struggle with what is God like? What is the most loving way to live? And what would God want us to do in the 20th, 21st century? And so we wrestle with it. That's what it is. And it helped me understand um, the beauty of what scripture is, this living and active word that we continue to struggle on and that new, new community does. And you as a pastor and you, Russ and Julie, all you at New Community, try each week to get up and, and wrestle with what the scripture is saying to us right now in the 21st century. 
man. Kent, that uh, seems like a, maybe even a great way just to end. But um, any final thoughts that you would um, maybe give us as we, uh, speaking from a, a person at New Community, but also just a, a follower of Jesus, a person that wants to live uh, in wonder, maybe more so than certainty in a lot of ways, that I, I want to be a person willing to uh, engage with the trust fall, not the belief fall, as you call it. Um, how would you in, encourage us to uh, continue to take steps forward into that wrestling match uh, to be a people willing to jump into the wheelbarrow? Well, I think the big one we're struggling with in, in the world we're in right now is to trust that God is a, is a good, is a good God. Yeah. And that, uh, we leave judgment to him and that, um, maybe he's more loving and kind than we have ever imagined. And that the need for us to listen and get to know people and, and talk with people that might even be very different than us. Yeah. Um, allows us, I think, uh, we all know this, as soon as you, it's easy to point the finger and say this or that until you actually find a friend or somebody who represents that and you hear their story. Um, it changes the way we uh, uh, navigate our world. And so maybe I would just say, believe that God is good and he's loving and that... Uh, it's his job to uh, be the judge. I mean, let's just be honest. If we can't agree, uh, I, this is what always cracks me up with churches. We go, oh yeah, we, the Christians, we believe in truth with a capital T, you know? Yeah. But then we, we go, there's this one truth and we believe it as Christians. Well, then you go into the old Lifeway bookstore, which is no longer the Christian bookstore. <laughs> you go, yes, we, we as Christians have the truth. But the rest of the world laughs at us because you. I just did this thing where I looked at the pictures of the book titles in Lifeway Christian Bookstore, and it was this: four views of Christians and divorce, seven <laughs> yeah. views of the cross, yeah, three ways to understand the Bible. You know, yeah. we can't even agree as Christians. You know, uh, so maybe we leave the mystery to God and say, you know, the one thing we know is this: God is love. And, and Jesus said this, if you want to wrap up all your crazy and all your systems into one thought, it's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That yeah. wraps up all your crazy. And the Pharisees yeah. are like, mm, no, we like the crazy. We like the 613 rules. So we are going to kill you. Yeah. Maybe that's good. Yeah. Kent, uh, as always, you are an incredible encouragement to me. I thank you for uh, speaking to our community this week and uh, new community as we close out our podcast. My encouragement to you is to uh, be a people that loves God well and that loves others well. Have a great day.
Please join me in this benediction. It's adapted from J. Philip Newell. New community, go forth into the world in peace. May the blessing of light be on you. May the blessed sunlight shine on you like a great fire so that stranger and friend may come and warm themselves at it. Watch for the light of God in the eyes of every living creature. Let life be in your words and your action. May you comfort those who are experiencing troubles or darkness of the soul, and may you lighten their way. May the peace of Christ be with you and the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way, new community. Go forth into this week in the name of our God, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.